Welcome to another episode of Faith and Culture Conversations. As pastors, ministers, and elders, we believe the enemy is after your mind and heart, so we're stepping into the fray. Today, we invite you to come along with us as we discuss a Christian perspective on work as well as the distinct challenges Christians face as laborers in the secular marketplace today. Could it be that the enemy is not only after your mind and heart, but that he is also after your family and your livelihood as well? Welcome to the conversation. Let's begin with brief introductions. I'm Ben Lowry, co-lead pastor of Lake Ridge Bible Church. The other lead pastor, Van Minner, is on vacation this week, but as they say, the show must go on. Today I'm joined by Kyle Wisdom, student ministry director at Lake Ridge Bible Church. Glad you're here, Kyle. Glad to be here. It's going to be a good time. We also have Keith Lowry, currently serving as elder at Lake Ridge Bible Church, also currently serving as my father, and perhaps more to the point that really matters, my kid's grandfather. Keith, dad, pops. You have more work experience and wisdom than both Kyle and I combined. So I'm glad you're here today, and I'm excited to get your thoughts and perspective on this important topic. I, I appreciate that backhanded reference to my advanced age. That's, that's really good. <laughs> i do what I can. Okay, guys. So as one failed nun turned local governess once said, let's start at the very beginning. In prior faith and culture conversations, we've talked a bit about how first principles derived from let's say Genesis 1 through 4, can be guideposts for navigating the modern world. For anyone joining our conversation for the first time, let's talk a little bit about what we mean by first principles. And then secondly, is work a first principle, or is it one of the original consequences of the fall? So what is a first principle, and then is work a blessing or a curse? To take a stab at the idea of a first principle, I think it is a foundational idea to the fabric of reality. So a first principle is an idea or a, or a um, state of being that cannot be escaped. Um, so it has to be something that wherever you're going, whatever you're doing, whoever you are, it still applies to you. Um, and I would, I would argue that work is one of those things. Um, I think the idea of work as a curse probably comes up because it's so heavily in, uh, referenced in Genesis 3 when uh, Adam and Eve are being cursed, um, but I think it comes before that. But first principles, that's what those are. Yeah, I think um, I think first principle—I I'd agree with Kyle, by the way, but I think we have examples, sort of manifestations of a variety of first principles in the first two or three chapters of Genesis where— you know, the origin or the backstory, you know, in in comic book lore, they talk about origin stories a lot, you know, superhero origin stories, and they, they've gotten fascinated with sort of where everybody came from and what what the origin of that was. We have an origin story, and the origin story sort of sets the framework for how to think about our lives, and, and Genesis 1 through 3 asserts to be the origin story of all humanity and the world in which we live, and it sets forth a bunch of foundational principles ranging from um, questions of, of sex and relationships and 
gender and uh, work comes up in the mix uh, in the very first principles. Uh, you know, man was put into a garden, uh, an orchard, if you will, and and told to work it well in advance of um, of anything that happened as part of the fall. And I think that um, he was told to work it and actually to keep it, which has a sort of a defensive connotation. Uh, and it meant really to defend it uh, from intruders. And obviously, by the third chapter, we see that there were intruders to be defended against, you know, so, you know, surprise. Um, but I do think work preceded the fall, but the fall had implications mm-hmm. for work. Yeah, another way to put this idea of first principles are sort of the basics of a worldview. I was talking with youth youth recently um, about the idea of how do you see what your worldview is, and ours in ministries kind of identifies four categories. You got to identify your origins. You got to identify your meaning. What is the basis of morality, and then what's your destiny? Where are you going? Um, And I would say work falls squarely in the category of meaning. Um, That the first kind of identifying marks God gave to his people after he said, you are made in my image is, now here's some things you need to be doing. Here's some work you need to accomplish. Um, And Keith referenced several of those um, from the end of Genesis 1. Um, But it's interesting to me that those two things are so closely tied, that to be made in the image of God also means to work, to be productive, to take something that is raw and um, untamed and um, chaotic, we might even say, and produce order and beauty and blessing through those things. Yeah. Um, so a first principle is an inescapable facet of reality, but I think it's also, um, to y'all's point, when y- y- you don't have to necessarily know the first principle. In other words, you don't have to be consciously aware of it for it to still have bearing on your life. But to know about it, to study Genesis and understand the first principles— you can walk away with guideposts for navigating, even in the 21st century, uh, reality and your own life experiences, the modern world as we know it. They haven't gone away. They can't be done away with. Um, We can stop thinking about them, but they won't stop having a bearing upon us, these first principles from Genesis. Uh, So it's interesting, Kyle, that you bring up work as one of our one of the ways we understand our meaning or our purpose in the world i think it's one of the things that makes christian the judeo christian perspective unique among all other religious perspectives in world history um I was reading this actually recently in a book called durable trades and i may quote from that book later in our conversation but one of the points the guy brings up is that every other ancient civilization that had some form of god or another the god is usually, like, take the Greek gods, for instance, the Olympians. They're they're all a bunch of—I mean, they're basically like the worst versions of ourselves, living in the lap of luxury, right? Yeah. Um, having their own kinds of problems, the same debauched problems that we all experience in our world today. The Judeo-Christian god is unique because he's a worker. Mm. He's a builder. Uh, he's a tradesman, if you will. We see that from the very beginning in Genesis, and we see that again in Jesus, who is born to a carpenter, right? And into a carpenter's family, into a builder's family. The the Judeo-Christian God is a working God. He is creating, he is building. The word to create in Genesis 
really means just to very generally to build. He's building something. So work is not just something God tells us to do because he's um, because he'd rather sit back and do nothing. Work is something that we derive from our being created in God's image. And he actually builds that necessity for work into his creation. Yeah. Um, so the idea, and I, I love that, that God began as a builder, and then when he arrives on earth, he can't think of anything better to do than to work with his hands. Um, and he learns it from, he learns to work from one of us as a baby. Anyways, that's an incarnational Yeah, there's, a, there's an inception thing right there that there, I don't know how to cope with. Yeah, that's pretty nuts. <laughs> Mentally. Um, God subjected himself to be the apprentice of one of his creations, which, anyways. Um, but you see this in Genesis chapter 2 when, uh, in Genesis chapter 1, we get sort of the overview of God creating creating humans and giving them the purpose to work, but then it sort of zooms in to really look at God's creation of humans in particular in the garden. And one of the comments it makes is, is before God made humanity, it says that the the ground before there was rain, and it specifically says before there was a man to work the ground. Mm -hmm. So it's almost like the world was waiting on human beings to come and bring it to something more than what it could have been without us. Mm -hmm which in some ways is entirely contradictory to the way we view the world today. We sort of feel like humans are like this parasite that sort of lives off the land, and we're just sort of locusts flying through and eating so, everything. So what, uh, if, what if we see in Romans 8, I'm going to pick up on this, and then what, what do you think? Paul writes in Romans 8 that all creation is groaning with anticipation for the revealing of the sons of God. Isn't that sort of reminisce to this Genesis thing you just mentioned, that... That creation was waiting. There was there wasn't yet a man to work the ground. So, isn't creation sort of doing now in in an eschatological sense what it was doing then, in uh, in the very beginning, waiting on the revealing of the sons of God? I, I think there's an argument to be made that uh, human dominion is the manifestation of what it means to be created in God's image. Uh, in in the context of Genesis, it says he, he was made in there. They were made in God's image, and then it goes on to say, to, and to exercise dominion over the earth. And I think we're like God in the sense that we have a sphere in which we're supposed to reign. And so, some notion of a tight coupling between man's presence and the created uh, physical world itself. Uh, is directly tied, I think, originally in first principles to uh, a facet of being what it means to be created in the image of God. Yeah. Well, in both situations, to your point, Keith and Ben, there, um, in both situations, creation is waiting for us to reflect God better. So in Genesis chapter yeah. two, it's waiting for us to reflect God by working in the way that He worked, and then in Romans, uh, the creation is waiting for us to reflect Jesus by uh, actually becoming eternal and righteous and, you know, taking on all the things God has said to already be true about us. So yeah. it's pretty fascinating, those two. You know, there's Christians are good at uh, Christians. I don't know if Christians are. I meant to say humans. Humans, one of the signs— Well, we of, should be at least as good as yeah, other humans. <laughs> as everybody else. But, you no, know, humans are good. It's, I think it's one of the signs of our intelligence we're able to look at something like a hammer and deduce its purpose— so we can look at a tool and understand its purpose from the way that it is, right? Um, you can tell what it is by the way that it is. By the way that form it is. Form follows function. Form, form follows function. And, 
it, it it's it's at least worth considering if we look at the human body, the way that it the, you know our knees bend in the middle, our hips bend, our elbows bend, our shoulders can reach up and down, and then consider that God built us with the garden in mind. That that the tool of the human body that God made somehow corresponds to the work He intended for us. You know, there's something to be said for, um, there's something to be said for that. That there's, we could, yeah. There's a. I'll just make a side comment in that regard. The form of the human body is one of the only facets of our existence in which the modern culture will argue we can't learn anything about its purpose from its form. Yeah. Um, you know, and Speaking particularly specifically this is, of sexuality yes, and gender. Exactly right. Yeah. Like we should just pretend like there's no purpose to anything, even though we can see the form and we understand the utility of it. We are supposed to, you know, sort of turn our face from that and pretend as if that's not true. And, but I think, yeah, to your point, Ben, I do think that um, there's more to our form than sexuality. And we are, we have capabilities that, you know, it's hard to argue weren't designed in. And if you read, once again, Genesis and First Principles, it is baked in to, to our existence. I would actually argue that Genesis 3, the curse against work in Genesis 3, is actually the greatest evidence that work is essential to us and one of our greatest blessings. So God only cursed things mm. in Genesis 3 that would have otherwise been good and beautiful and without pain and suffering, right? Yeah, yeah, so that's right. The example being so like uh, women and childbearing, mm -hmm. that was essential to human flourishing and human design and human purpose. God curses us according to our purpose because, so that our purpose is frustrated somehow. Right, because sin is corrupting that purpose. And mm -hmm. so the curse is a reminder of the sin corrupting the purpose, right? right. So it's all sort of uh, a, both both a reality we can't escape. I think there's something essential. It's not like God was just like slapping our hands. He's going, this is kind of the way it is now. Um, and you're going to you're gonna feel it, and I'm mm -hmm. going to make sure you feel it. Mm -hmm. um, but it's the same thing with... Uh, uh, Adam working the ground. He says, because you have sinned against me, you've turned away from the image that you are meant to reflect. Your work, the thing you were made to do, is going to be harder now mm -hmm. um, because of the fact that you're no longer connected to me in the way you were supposed to. And for most of us, that's our biggest experience with work is not the <laughs> blessing, but often the curse. Yeah. But how gracious of God, even in the midst of all that fallenness and brokenness and the revealing of these curses— that even though our purpose was frustrated in the fall, whether that be childbearing or, or, or field tending or animal husbandry or whatever the case may be, he didn't remove the fulfillment from it. There's still an aspect of work that touches a part of us that, uh, that nothing else really can touch. There's been studies on human happiness that have been done. There's a book by an author whose name I cannot even begin to pronounce. It's got more consonants than vowels, so I won't even attempt it. But the book is called Flow, and it's a study of the state in which human beings are most happy. Okay? Now, this is part of the second piece of this conversation we need to have as we build this conversation out today. There's a lot of us who believe that happiness is leisure, mm. and we will be happiest when we find some point of constant um, leisure okay, or, or relaxation. But what we found in our own studies is that humans tend to be most happy when they're in a state of flow. In other words, when they're working 
and deeply connected mentally and physically to the to the problems or the tasks associated with their work. There's we, we can reach a state of cognitive flow in the midst of our labor that we don't reach at any other in any other way or at any other time. It it, it, it touches on our purpose, I think, that God gave us, and the sense of famil- fulfillment and happiness we derive from that. We never find that same level of happiness in our relaxation. So as a great example, I've probably watched more TV shows on Netflix than I'm willing to admit, um, but I don't remember a large chunk of those times. But I can still remember distinctly a random afternoon I spent with one of my buddies in college where we found this tiny little corner of uh, this park, um, you know, way out in the woods somewhere. And uh, we loaded up a four-wheeler with tools and we drove off into the wilderness and we were determined to establish a little campsite that would be ours you know that we could go and camp at whenever we wanted to we were going to call the camp grizzly you know after his four-wheeler and uh i spent probably eight hours of a saturday you know i i should have been home doing homework i should have been, you know doing something but i devoted myself to pulling weeds and ripping literal thorns out of the bush and digging a fire pit and putting up posts so we could hang hammocks and all this stuff. And by the end of the day, I was exhausted. I was covered in cuts and bruises and bumps. But I have I have very few days in my college career where I was more just fulfilled. Happy. Standing there in the mud with one of my friends going, we've established just a tiny bit of order in the chaos of these woods. Yeah, I, I remember a similar experience myself. I was early married and looking for every odd job I could possibly find, and a buddy of mine who was also in ministry called and said that he knew somebody who owned a printing press that he needed disassembled, and I thought, well, that seems weird. Um, you know, I, I don't know, I had never really seen a printing press in person. You don't mean I, like an inkjet printer? No, it's not, it wasn't, a, it wasn't a Xerox machine, it was like <laughs> an actual printing press that needed to be wow. disassembled, and so I went to this warehouse in, in some part of Dallas and walked through the doors and there was this 100 foot long printing press with all of its components attached together all these gears and things and there was grease everywhere i mean this thing was truly a well-oiled machine um and our job for the entire day was simply to disassemble this 100 foot long printing press and we had to figure it out but it was i i i will we started at sunrise and we ended after sunset working on this printing press. And I look back on this as one of the most memorable, satisfying uh, days that I've spent in labor. I mean, it was just so fulfilling to work in that way, you know, with my hands, my mind and my hands connected. There was a different level of happiness connected with it. I think all of these kinds of events in our lives speak to... Um, the refreshing fulfillment that comes from being truly interested in something outside of yourself. Mm-hmm. I think one of the we we obviously were in an entertainment culture, and um, so to your earlier point, Ben, this notion that self entertainment is the measure of the good life is uh, it kind of pervades, and so people have entertainment devices now. We have them in our pockets, and so we can watch full length movies. Anytime we want, wherever we are, because we have the connectivity, we have the content we can access, we can do that. And so we can just, 
you know, sort of live life passively, entertaining ourselves. But I think the the eye-opening experience that hopefully young people have the opportunity to have is to actually cultivate and grow an interest in something for its own sake. Um, I can't remember if I mentioned this in one of our earlier podcasts, but uh, in The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, Eustace is this um, kind of spoiled brat. He becomes quite the amazing hero in the course of the story, but he starts as a spoiled brat, and C.S. Lewis makes this comment about him. He said, in his pocket, he kept a book of all his marks, and that's kind of the British way of saying grades, right? He kept a book of all his marks because while he was not interested in any subject for his own sake, he was very interested in his marks. And I think this is one of the keys, at least it has been in my life, uh, to, to being successful in work, and that is to actually cultivate and develop an interest in something for its own sake. Mm-hmm. outside of my own um, entertainment. Yeah, well, and I'll, I'll even piggyback off that idea. I think that, I'll call it I'll call it a disease. You don't have to agree with me. The disease of measuring work by some of these really abstract marks. You know, I, yeah. so I work with youth. Right. Um, and so a lot of them will spend their days trying to reach these very particular marks because – as much as it may seem arbitrary, their future depends on some of these things. And so they're not given the ability to think about, you know, what's work I want to do or what's work I could be good at or how can I – they can't think about work as something to fulfill them or to give back to others. Work has to be a um, an, a necessity. You know, their schoolwork at, at that age. Schoolwork becomes this uh, taskmaster uh, so they can get these grades to lead them to college, but it's always this kind of next thing. It's this treadmill idea. Yeah. Um, but it's never giving them the chance to think about work as a blessing, mm-hmm. um, and that's a shame. Yeah, I wrote a blog post several years ago called "On Becoming a Person of Substance," and it grew out of the fact that I was spending a lot of time at this point interviewing young college graduates. Most of them PhD graduates uh, had finished their PhD in electrical engineering, typically, and the thing that I kept being surprised by is that for many of these young I mean, they had invested a significant part of their young adult life in earning these PhDs. And in many cases, they weren't actually interested in the subjects. They were more driven by the competitive, comparative achievement with their peers than they were by the subject itself. So I'd get these people to come in and they would want to interview for a job as a software engineer but, but they weren't interested in software engineering. <laughs> they weren't interested in doing technology. They just, it was just the next thing on, the, the next check mark. They were all Eustace. You know, they were all showing up to put a, a entry in their book of marks, but they weren't actually interested in the work that we did. And that wasn't true across the board. I mean, you, this is the, I mean, you know, our goal was to find people who were interested in it and did want to do it for its own sake. But, um, but it's an interesting challenge that, even when people seem to be high achieving, they're not motivated by something outside of themselves. I, uh, I, I kind of like Eustace when I was a kid. I remember walking around with a copy of my marks in my pocket, um, but only because I was afraid of showing them to you. 
uh, and and mom. Yeah, <laughs> not because You're, I was proud yeah. of them, but I was felt they were safer yeah. in my pocket than in yours. Your um, grades went straight up as soon as you got married. I, yeah, I yeah, yeah. That. I became a much more productive individual as soon as there was someone else's well being was on the on the hook yeah. uh, for but, that. But that's to Keith's point, though. It's you. You are outside yourself, and mm-hmm. I think work demands that of us. Work yeah. pulls us outside ourselves. I think that's important. You know, there's Mike Rowe talks a lot about work. Mike Rowe sort of he was the host of Dirty Jobs for years, and um, now he's the voiceover guy for an, any number of co- commercials. Ford commercials come to mind. He also happens to have been an opera singer at one point in his life. No way. He's got the kind of yeah. voice for that. You can tell wow. listening to him. There's some cool YouTubes of him singing with a barbershop quartet. Um, yeah, he's a singer. Just as a guest singer. But pretty, when, pretty when he's not singing opera and hosting television shows or voice, voicing over things, he's thinking well about things. He tends to think well about things. Work is one of those things he's thought a lot about. And I remember he, he did this video about, you know, one of the challenges facing young people today is that they're told that they should follow their passion. You need to follow your passion. And so there's this sort of crippling reality of infinite possibilities. Children are sort of left wondering, well, what is my passion, you know? And he says, maybe the best thing we should be telling children, rather than follow your passion, is bring your passion with you. Do something that's worth doing, and then bring your passion with you. Do an awesome job at it. So I want to I shift gears a little bit here. Um, we're going to talk some more about a Christian ethic of work as we develop this conversation, but I, I want to talk about some of the challenges and obstacles that Christians face in the world today. Uh, Something has changed over the course of the last, I don't know, I would say maybe 50 years, probably even longer than that. We could probably trace these changes back to the Industrial Revolution and and what its impact on the family and family-centered economies. But something has happened that's resulted with the circumstances we find ourselves in today, where a Christian cake baker named Jack Phillips is getting ruined, raked over the coals through litigation um, for his unwillingness to provide cakes for homosexual weddings. So what's going on in the world today, and do you see other examples of that? Is he he just a lightning rod? Is he a standalone in that, or are there other examples of Christians finding it difficult to navigate their industry and maintain their integrity as Christians? Well, I think—I mean, Jack was— Obviously, uh, an early, maybe a, a reasonably early example of you know what people call cancel culture, and cancel culture being um, an effort to delegitimize and um, even sort of remove from having an economic platform. In Jack's case, uh, if you don't adhere to a certain set of of uh, secular and cultural values. So Baronel Stutzman is kind of the one that comes to mind most recently. She's a woman out of the Pacific Northwest who had a florist shop who uh, recently lost, unlike Jack, who's kind of continued to fight and kept his head above water in some ways, but just barely. Uh, I think Baronel Stutzman is out of business now because of um, because of the, the Supreme Court's uh, ruling. Uh, but actually, interestingly enough, Jack Phillips and Baronel Stutzman are both uh, going to be uh, 2022 recipients of the Colson Center's uh, William Wilberforce Award, uh, and they'll be uh, speaking uh, next summer at their at that annual uh, meeting. So, I mean, they're 
there's some awareness around that. I do think, though, that in secular culture, it's becoming more and more interesting challenge for Christians. I have a friend that just applied for a job at a major international manufacturing company. And as part of the job application, he had to check one of three boxes uh, on the form. One said, um, are you LGBTQ plus? Check that box. Or you could say, not LGBTQ plus. You check that box. And the third box you could check is, not LGBTQ plus, but an ally. So... That, that puts applicants in a position of, well, I mean, you know, what is ally? What does that mean? I mean, does that mean I embrace a whole set of cultural and political pursuits? Or does that mean I have friends who are gay? I mean, you, you know what I'm saying? I, it's, it's all very nebulous. But I think that the sinister side of it is the implication that, um, you know, if you don't check the right thing, you may not be welcome. Man, so I think this goes together with kind of how we've turned corporations into um, the business model has moved from making quality products to sort of making quality statements of morality. So like nobody buys Nikes anymore unless they agree with like all the agendas on the commercials of Nike, you know, or Coca-Cola making commercials about, you know, equality or whatever. And so not all of them are bad, not all of them are good, but they're all less selling products and more selling sort of a vision of the world that's tied to these political moral statements. And so now companies like Amazon, Google, Coca-Cola, they can't have employees who don't fit their ethos, don't fit their view of what people should be like. And so now if you want to work at a company and you just want to make good shoes, you know, to kind of allude to Luther, Martin Luther. Um, if you just want to make good shoes as a Christian, but you don't go along with some of the political stances that your company goes along with, they can't have you because it ruins the brand. So your personal moral conduct is now getting wrapped up with the company's brand and what they want people to think about them. Um and so that's a really hard place for Christians to be because now their companies put them in an awkward position of if you don't go along with what we want people to see us as, right? If you don't sign that you're an ally, if you don't agree um, with our statements on equity, if you don't, you know, if you don't follow along with our particular version of political correctness, um, you're a harm to us, a bottom line harm. And in some ways, they're actually right. Um, that this is how companies are being evaluated, um, but that puts Christians in a real tough position. It's a. Um, we're going to do another podcast session on this, but I think it's partly a casualty of the social media world we live in, that everyone has to have a social posture and assume a social posture um, on moral issues. So, not not to get into the social media aspect of that too deeply, because again, we do want to do a separate. In fact, I think our next episode, just a little teaser, is going to be about digital media and its impact on the world and on on the way that we think, even as believers. Um, but Christians, not just in the corporate work world, but in medicine, in education, are being asked to sign off on ideas that we find that run counter to first principles, counter not just to first principles, but to explicit biblical Christian teaching 
on these issues. So, for instance, I, I heard recently there was a guy who has a friend who was a surgeon, and he asked his surgeon, he said, am I right or am I wrong? He says, my impression is that elective transgender surgeries are the only surgeries that currently exist where the patient gets to come in and tell the doctor what's going on in their body and the doctor is not there to verify it or diagnose it. The doctor has no say in it. The patient comes in and tells the doctor what's going on. And the surgeon said, yes, you're absolutely right. It's the one surgery in the world that exists that we're being required to perform that the patient gets to come and tell me what's happening. It's not right. something I can actually diagnose from the outside looking in. It runs counter to the very practice and philosophy of medicine that we've known from the beginning of time, since medicine was being practiced, yeah. right? Well, and just standard business practices like how you end your emails. Um, so like the footers of, or the signature lines of a lot of emails now, companies are asking people to place their pronouns. So they're saying, hey, you should put down, you know, he, him, her. He, him, she, her, you know, them, they. Um, I can't think of pronouns very quickly <laughs> off the top of my head. But the idea being that you need to identify what your gender identity is. And so now you have Christians having to ask, do I just leave that out of my email and hope nobody notices? If I put uh, pronouns that match my biological gender, is that okay? Or is that sort of already giving into the category distinctions? Like am I still buying into – the view of what gender is, um, or uh, now that they're being asked to use those pronouns in those emails or in those meetings, mm -hmm. um, going back to this idea of being an ally that you were talking about, Keith, and it's no longer a question of are you going to uh, not resist, right? It's not a question of, well, are you going to be mean to our LGBTQ coworkers? Because I don't know any Christians that are arguing that we should be able to do that or should or should do that. The question now becomes, are you going to get in line and openly affirm the choices they're making as a right. sort of shadow requirement of your employment? It's the question of this international manufacturer, are you an ally? Mm -hmm. and, that's what, and that is what they mean by the term ally. Are you, are you willing to contend? Are you already contending for the agenda of the LGBTQ plus? Mm -hmm. So... If this is the world we live in, and we see this also in education, you know, teachers are being asked to teach certain things or hold certain perspectives, not teach other things, right? So if this is the world that we're living in, then should we at some point as Christians begin to consider the Benedict Option? Okay, we'll talk a little bit more about what the Benedict Option is, but I guess the question is, how long can we persist and exist within a world in which Christians are no longer considered being for the common good. If the common good is defined as everyone getting to live into the reality that they define for themselves, and is a complete rejection of first principles and the reality that God has set up, and Christians are, Christians are saying, no, that what, what you want to be true is not true. And if that, if that stance puts us outside what people deem to be the common good, then how long do we really expect to be able to persist in the broader marketplace? So this isn't necessarily a new question for Christians in a marketplace not run by Christian ideas. So, you know, the last couple decades, a lot of Christians have had to ask the question about how they're going to deal with Sundays, with Sabbaths, you know, are we going to work on that day 
if we have a conviction that that's not, you know, what the Lord asks of us? You know, is there a day of rest that's so required of us? Interestingly enough, also from <laughs> the the first couple chapters of Genesis. And so they've had to ask questions like, okay, if I'm in an industry where Sunday's a big deal, can I can I keep working in that business and expect to to flourish there? Um, that I think that's one of the reasons why this sort of myth around Chick Fil A came up. So I worked at, at Chick Fil A for a while, um, not affiliated. None of my views <laughs> reflect upon the institution as it stands. Um, but so when I worked there, um, there was a lot of people that always asked me, so do you have to like tell them you're a Christian to work at Chick-fil-A? <laughs> I was like, no. First of all, that's extremely illegal for you to ask someone that. Um, but I think part of the perception came from the fact that it's not open on Sundays. And for me, that was huge because I was working in church ministry. And so I said, I have to make my employment match my Christian uh, priorities. And I think the problem with the new issues are they're not time-constrained. So we're not worrying about, okay, well, Sunday's a day I have to set aside. Now it's there are words I can't use. There are statements I can't say. Um, and that is not something you can just tiptoe around for too long. Yeah. Um, and I think certain industries are worse than others. So then, all right, Keith, Dad, Pops, give us – Give us, in your words, your best description of The Benedict Option. Huh. It's a book written by a guy named Rod Dreher. Uh, it's a good friend of mine, actually. No, actually, that's not the case. I happened to sit next to him on a plane recently. Um, he's not a good friend of mine. Uh, but I do love his writing. I think he's got a valuable, important perspective on some of these things. So, in your own words, try to summarize for us what the Benedict Option is. What, what, is, what do we mean by the Benedict Option? Yeah, um, so I think the title of the book uh, is, is actually more of an extreme articulation than the recommendations that you find in the book. I, I think a lot of people see the Benedict Option and they think, oh, we all have to go live in caves or something. You know, in caves or in monasteries, and that's not at all what he's arguing. He's saying that we have to be more thoughtful and intentional about forming Christian communities that are uh, sort of appropriately interdependent with less dependency, uh, I think both socially and materially, mm-hmm. on the broader secular world. And so he's not saying, you know, we should all go be, you know, Branch Davidians. He's saying, uh, let's just think more. He's saying the opposite. Yeah, actually. Yeah, yeah. we should all think uh, and act more intentionally about uh, helping one another be uh, sufficient in the world, materially and spiritually and socially, uh, in the absence of broader cultural acceptance or approval. Yeah, Al Mohler, I think, reviewed the Benedict Option at one point. I read a review of his, and I think one of his one of his comments was he he takes a more missional is the word he used a more missional uh, perspective on things and i think it it left me with the impression that he hadn't read the book hmm. um because the argument of rod Dreher is that sometimes the most the greatest missional impact we can have as christians is not to swim in the same stream but it's to provide an alternate river of of opportunity and belonging belonging Sometimes yeah. it's it's the alternative that stands out the most and has the greatest impact in society rather than yeah. we're just like you with Jesus too. Yeah. You know. So so to use, you know, companies as examples of this, you know, people everybody wants to work at places like Google 
And it's not because Google looks like everyone else. It's because some of the practices at Google, you know, some of the cool stuff they have on their campuses and some of the cool ways they let you do work differently is attractive. I think it's one of the reasons why people like working at Chick-fil-A is because they provide a different uh, atmosphere than a lot of other um, fast food kind of dining options for their employees. And I think Christians have for a long time bought into this idea that the only way to be in the world is to look as much like the world as possible. You know, it's this whole in the world of the world thing, which tells you the, you know, the power of prepositions um, that we're constantly going, how can we look as much like the world as possible and still be like Jesus? I think the question needs to be, how can we be as much like Jesus as possible so that the world is enticed by who Jesus is? I think there's another aspect to Dreyer's um, interest in this, and that is um, just in practical terms, how can we how can we reduce uh, cultural pressure on people within our community, families and individuals within our community? So when Beck and I were living up in the Pacific Northwest, my wife and I, we um, we were our daughter was in a Christian school up there that was associated with a church that was really, I think, a forward-thinking church on a variety of issues. And they did some interesting things intentionally designed to reduce uh, economic pressure on families and individuals within the church. And here's here's an example of, of a couple of different things they did. On the one hand, they actually had a an auto mechanic shop on the church grounds as a church ministry, and they had auto mechanics on the church staff. And these mechanics actually did repairs for members of the congregation at, you know, essentially the cost of parts for members of the congregation. And it totally, for many families, automobiles and transportation and unexpected car repair bills are a significant impact on their economic prospects. And so by having this as a ministry, they were able to really alter the dependency the people within the church had outside and the economic exposure they had outside the community. And then they actually used this as a ministry for underprivileged families in the area when they had extra capacity to, to actually serve. The other area they did something similar is they actually uh, developed a mausoleum on the church property. And they had um, a, uh, I don't know what you'd call it, a funeral home of sorts, funeral service. Funeral service and uh, someone who can embalm bodies on staff. And when these families at church or within the community would face these, I mean, I mean, it's a significant economic thing. If mortician. you're just going to... Mortician. Yeah, yeah, mortician. If you're, if you're just going to, you know, bury a family member that dies unexpectedly, it, it can be, you know, today in 2021, it, it can be conservatively $15,000 in, yeah. you know, you got to have a place to bury them and you got to have all the services for caring for their body and you got to buy even a minimalist casket and if you're going to have a service someplace all that stuff sort of mounts up and becomes a very expensive economic game changer for some families and so uh, this church was just really thoughtful and intentional about how can we think critically about taking some ministry activity that you know isn't just it is more pragmatic and practical and beneficial in terms of helping our, our families and not just informational. So you're Which, saying if everybody drives and everybody dies, 
churches should be helping us do both of those things well. I mean, this church was doing that, and it was it was a blessing to many of the people involved, yeah. That's awesome. So th- this leads me to one of my favorite passages about work in Scripture. It's 1 Thessalonians 4. So this is right after um, Paul's been talking to the Thessalonians and saying, you are good at loving one another. To your point, yeah. you are meeting the needs of one another. And then he says, do this more and more. And this is how he describes the church should love each other more and more by, this is what he says, aspire to live quietly which is like the exact opposite of 21st century, you know, people. Um, We try to live as loudly as possible We try to live virally. Yeah, there you go. (laughs) So he says, live quietly, mind your own affairs, which means get out of other people's business. Again, Um, not one of our strong suits. And then he says, to work with your hands. Yeah. As we instructed you, meaning when Paul was there, not only was he giving them instructions on how to follow Jesus, but he said, and we were trying to make you guys good workers. And then he concludes with, so that you may walk properly before outsiders, meaning that when they see your work, they're they're impressed. They think you're you know you're good people, and be dependent on no one. And you know a lot of people would lean back against this and say, well, you really can't be, you know, fully self sufficient. You can't just pull away. You know, and this is the critique of the Benedict Option. A lot of people give yeah. you can't just separate yourself entirely from society. But I don't think that's what Paul's getting at. He's saying, to your point, Keith, to be interdependent. Meaning that I'm taking care of my needs so that I can continue to give and benefit the needs of other people so that we're interdependent upon one another. None of us is sort of just always taking. We're also giving. Well, it, it, it boils down to Acts 2, right? These were the, the newest Christians had formed some new devotions. Having received the Spirit and believed the gospel, they'd formed some new family devotions, one of them being a, devo- a devotion to one another selling what they had and distributing the proceeds, specifically, the Bible says, as any had need. So what they sold and how they contributed to the community was derived from the needs they saw within the family of God. There was a, That's the kind of interdependence that we're talking about. We're not talking about communism. We're not talking about commonly held goods. We're talking about communities, uh, Christian communities that exist productively contributing to the members' needs as we become aware of them. So one of the things I see a need for, you know, when you're talking about what does the church need to move forward, if we're looking at the world that, so like my youth, what kind of world of work are they going to inhabit? I think we need to be very critically examining the current sort of trajectory for work of you go to high school, you go to a four-year university, you get a degree in liberal arts, which, you know, I I got a Bible college degree, so some people need that. Um, And then if you probably need to do a master's for a lot of, you know, industries now, we need to be very critically assessing whether that's the best way for those youth to go all the time, especially depending on which business they're going into, because some of these industries are worse in terms of their political and moral requirements than others. And so I would love to see the church lean into some of these ideas you're talking about, Keith, about asking, look at all the awesome, um, very skilled workers we have in the church, people who are good at trades, you know, electricians, plumbers, uh, auto mechanics, um, people who are working and can teach and apprentice youth in the church so that when they leave the church to go off to college or whatever, you know, whatever their choice is, They've actually got something that keeps them interdependent, not simply dependent. Well, this is—I'm glad you bring it up, because it's kind of where I would like to take the conversation. At, families and churches need to think differently about 
future career prospects and how we prepare our children. You being in youth ministry, Kyle, you're, you're thinking about this all the time. Um, and, and as parents and grandparents, we think about these things a lot as well. Are the traditional avenues of finding a career path still viable for Christians? So here's an int- so the the stat right now is is that if you get a bachelor's degree, you're projected to get I believe it's roughly a million dollars more over the course of your lifetime in in work, and that's a stat that's driven this push to college for generations now. The question parents need to ask is, as Christians, are we going to have to start forfeiting a million dollars? You know what I mean? Because if we send them to college and they get into some of these industries, they may not have a job there long because of what that industry is going to require of them. That's a different kind of cost Mm -hmm. than we've been accustomed to. Yeah, so I I suspect – I mean I I haven't seen the study, but I suspect that the comparative study is comparing someone who is unskilled high school graduate – compared to someone who has a college degree. Uh, I think there's a there's probably another alternative. And there's that an excluded is, middle. Right, there's an excluded yeah. middle, and that is the skilled high school graduate. Or a trade school graduate. Or a trade school yeah. graduate. Probably who, so. Yeah, who, who didn't fit either one of the, didn't find a bucket in that study, maybe. Trade um, school graduate may actually be incorporated into probably that so. idea no. of graduate. Yeah, uh, it so. may be. Um, but what I was going to say is I, I do think that um, there's a number of interesting challenges Christian families face with the current model. Uh, I think the indebtedness that typically accompanies a college degree for young adults is a trap in some ways and uh, sort of increases their dependency and exposure to, you know, uh, to coercion um, and the neediness that it really forecloses decision-making options, um, and that's I think an interesting challenge that families face. Um, also, frankly, Christian a Christian worldview in many universities is not just uh, disagreeable; it's morally reprehensible, and in the minds of the university itself. And so, there's a real sense in which sending our kids to traditional schools is placing them in a very adversarial context at a very critical time in their life Um, with, you know, kind of an um, not normal level of vulnerability at a personal level. So so I think that, you know, alternatively, um, I think Christians need to be thinking about, you know, Again, first principles, and what are those things in our life that are essential versus entirely superfluous? And so by essential, I think if Christians spent more time focusing on essential skills Hmm. and essential skill development in Christian young people, uh, and by essential skills, I mean, you know, at, at the end of the day, everyone needs shelter, clothing, food, um, these are... Anything associated with those areas is what I would call an essential skill, and I think those are skills in those areas are skills with which you can earn a living, and which don't require a four-year degree. So whether it's you know electricians, plumbers, carpenters, uh, you know, auto mechanics, HVAC, 
uh, repair people. All sure. of those things are essential to the needs of human beings and their welfare. And so I think thinking differently about whether everyone needs a liberal arts degree or everyone needs, you know, uh, a four-year degree at all is a is a really, uh, I think, a good thing for parents to be doing right so now. So an anecdote along these lines and a, and a perspective to offer. There was a, I read a book recently called Rory uh, called Durable Trades, written by a guy named Rory Groves, and it's presenting a lot of these arguments that we've been talking about. Um, so if you're interested in finding that book, I'm sure you could buy it off Amazon or christianbooks.com, or you can borrow my copy if you know me personally. So, But it's a good book. One of the stories he tells is of a little boy who—not a little boy, he was in high school, and he was, um, he was told by his school's guidance counselor that he should start applying for scholarships because his family, because of the work, line of work that they're in, he was going to be able to get a lot of financial aid. And really, the, the guidance counselor didn't know anything about his family's income except for the fact that his father was a carpenter and his mother was in landscaping. What the, the, the truth of the matter is, the boy qualified for exactly zero dollars mm. in federal financial aid because the gro- his parents grossed annually over five hundred thousand dollars a year as mm-hmm. a builder and a landscape artist, um, landscape engineer, and um, and so it just goes to show that there's sort of a preconceived prejudice against trades, against doing things with your hands. They're not going to make as much money. He tells another story of someone talking to a dad about whether college was still the most viable option for Christians pursuing a career path. And um, the dad had just sent his child to college and paid bukus of money to do it. And so he sort of took offense. And he said, I don't want my son to end up being a plumber making $8 an hour. (laughs) And he kind of quipped, well, if you know of a plumber who's charging only $8 an hour, let me know. (laughs) Yeah, man. (laughs) Most plumbers, you know, these days are $150 an hour or more. Um, You're making good money in the trade. So it's, it's a financially viable option. The other thing I'll add is this. And then Kyle, you've got some things you'd like to add as well. Um, The other thing I'll add is this. These first principles function like an interlocking grid. So one of the other first principles that we see in in Genesis is the primacy of the family, the primacy of the natural family. One of the things that happened in the Industrial Revolution that's ultimately resulted in the condition we find ourselves in today as a society is the decoupling of work and economy from the home, from, from families existing in this way. Families and work are the context within which values are passed down, um, within which the faith is passed down. We see this in Deuteronomy 6. As you go about the way, talk about the things that the Lord has done, right? It's within the context of the home and family that these that work and industry function best. And so the Benedict option isn't something radically new, the thing that's radically new is the existence that we currently find ourselves in today. The circumstances brought about by the Industrial Revolution um, <clears throat> are, are radically new by world history standards. This, is, this would have been inconceivable as, as short ago as less than 200 years, right? So... So the thing that the Benedict Option is is lobbying for is actually a return to a different set of values than we have today. And so 
the, the thing is, if we do this, Christians can begin to invest not necessarily in reforming society, although that would still be a goal, but in replacing society with a higher fertility rate, right? Mm-hmm. If Christians are, if Christians in their own communities, alternative communities, <clears throat> are having more babies, working f- with better things and doing pursuing better values, then eventually the the church replaces society. <laughs> Um, just by yeah. but by virtue of our ad- advanced birth rate, right? Yeah. Well, the, the the whole term economy that's always used to reference, you know, the broader society's work and what it produces comes from the idea of a home of a home industry. Um, the yeah. words in in Greek all mean, you know, the work within the home kind of idea, um, and that's kind of where it all began because that's where money was made. You know, the family farm back in the day. I think too, uh, my generation kind of figured out that like the whole like college pipeline isn't great for everybody because a lot of us got a lot of degrees that we paid a lot of money for and they weren't always there for us when, <laughs> when we got out. Um, and so to your point, there's definitely some durability and some longevity and some real value um, in other forms of education. I don't even say alternative forms because that's assuming that college is the baseline because um, I know lots of people for whom working other industries, not going to college, but going into professional training and certification immediately that was the way for them to not only make money but be fulfilled Mm. um because they were actually doing something for other people that they needed Mm. um and they were made to feel less than in an educational environment Mm. um and i think that's that's a shame um but one of the other reasons why a home economy and even a trade economy can often be more beneficial for christians now is they're less susceptible to the winds of culture because they are smaller, they are yes. more local. So you don't have as many multinational plumbing companies. Yeah, um, you have a lot of multinational tech companies and medical companies and these kind of things. But at the end of the day, plumbers have to be local because they have to drive to somebody's house and crawl underneath their and uh, unclog foundation their toilet. That's and right. unclog yeah. the toilets. You know, um, and so and we love that about them. And <laughs> praise the Lord for those guys, right? Yeah. Um, and so we need to be thinking. Along this line of resiliency, of mm-hmm. independence, it's a good word. Is for us as Christians, we need to be thinking about if the culture turns on us, and I think it's not a question of if, but when. Is where I'm working or how I'm working going to be able to survive that? Because I think what people get wrong about the Benedict option is they assume culture. The Christians are abandoning the culture, and that's wrong. Mm-hmm. The culture is abandoning and jettisoning or kicking out the Christians. Mm-hmm. And so Christians need to think, once I'm getting kicked out of this this uh, party here, um, where am I going to go? Mm-hmm. And the answer has always been back home and back to the church. And so the church needs to be equipped so that they know, hey, you know, you've got people in your uh, congregation who own businesses. Are they connected with the other people who own businesses? Can they work together? Can they bring in these people? Um, are there places where Christians can go, um, and I think the trades is a great spot for that mm-hmm. um, because they're not necessarily having to wait on the huge economy out there. They can say, we can work here and all be fine and all meet one another's needs by working quietly with our hands and being a blessing not only to each other, but the world will see us and they will see that we can fix those pipes um, and they might not get as upset with us when we do that. <laughs> so it's been a... We haven't even scratched the surface of, of this topic, Christian work, how we engage in the marketplace, uh, more broadly speaking. But I, I would like to 
get some closing remarks from you guys as you're thinking about that, how you'd like to wrap up your contribution to this episode. I'd like to offer this as an anecdote for what we've been talking about. There's a community in the middle of Texas called Homestead Heritage, okay? And Homestead Heritage is an interesting community. They're a group of um, they're a group of Jesus followers, I'll just say, who decided that they could do better than they were doing in New York City during the 1970s. So they uprooted themselves. New York, New York City in the 1970s was not a good place to be, by the way. So they they kind of like New York City in 2021. <laughs> kind of like New York City today. Yeah. They 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 left where they where they were. They drove cross country, and their story is kind of kind of interesting. They ended up. Long story short, they ended up in the middle of Texas, somewhere between Hillsboro and Waco. They've got, I don't know how many hundreds of acres, but they, they are an interdependent, semi-Mennonite community that focuses on the essential trades, the essential crafts. Okay, so pottery, uh, woodworking, blacksmithing, animal husbandry, farming, those kinds of things. And... They've learned interdependence. So here's an interesting thing. There's a book by—so one of the people who lives at this community or did live in the community is S.K. Toombs. She was a philosophy professor at the University of Texas in Waco, and she wrote a book called Changing Our Minds. And what she discovered, what they discovered as a community, is that when a family moved into their community from the outside world and and became contributing members of their communal family, the little kids who showed up with ADD or ADHD diagnoses, when those little boys or little girls learned a trade, the symptoms associated with their ADHD or ADD evaporated. When they learned a a skill that connected their mind to their bodies in a constructive, productive manner, it undid, it untied the knots that I think our world ties in our minds and in our spirits. Now, that's not social commentary. That is not a medical perspective. That's an anecdote, okay? But I think it speaks volumes to what Kyle's been talking about from Thessalonians, this need for us to work with our hands. What we, what we see as a first principle in the way that our bodies are shaped, the way that God built us to work, the, 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 the degree to which we as humans are made in God's image and derive our workmanship from a God who is a worker. I think it speaks to those things. It speaks volumes to, volumes to those things. And so, anyway, I, that, that may be a healthy perspective for us as we consider our place in the world as Christians and the work that we do in it. But from you guys, what, are, what would you say would—how would you like to wrap up your contribution to this conversation today? I used a word earlier, and I'll use it again. Resiliency. Um, as Christians, we need to think about how is our work going to benefit ourselves. You know, we are given the responsibility by God to take care of our needs. Um, and then by extension, meet the needs of other people. And the culture is going to consistently make it more difficult for Christians to maintain their integrity and maintain their material success. Um, that's not, I don't know, I don't have a study to prove that just yet, um, but I, th- I, can, I can read the wind every once in a while. And Christian parents in particular need to be asking themselves, how am I setting up my children for a world of work that has resiliency? 
And I think the first step is to train them to love work, not necessarily to love a type of work um, in the sense of loving, you know, computer programming or even plumbing, but just loving to work, to be productive, to have a an appetite for production and for contributing to their community. And I think the second part is asking what work can we give them that will last, mm -hmm. that will not only be there today, tomorrow, or be on the next trend of the economic you know, tendencies, Cycle. but actually will last them through their life. Mm -hmm. I think those are two huge questions we need to ask. Mm. I, I think that um, it's important not to take away from this conversation the the lie that the only work worth doing is work you get paid for. Mm. Um, I think, in, in particularly women in our culture, have been kind of sold that lie mm. that the only work that's real or worth doing is work that Comfort produces paycheck. economic uh, paychecks. And I think that that it's a completely different perspective from a first principle standpoint. I think the first principle is that the work that we're called to do is work that contributes to human and um, communal flourishing. Communal flourishing, right. And so I think that um, it, in some cases, economically remunerated work does that. Not in all cases, but in some cases it does. But there's many, many, at least as many cases in which there's no economic remuneration, but in fact, it contributes to human flourishing. And I think that it's important to, this is kind of to responsive, Ben, to your earlier comment about families and the centrality of the home being the economic core uh, uh, of someone's existence. And Kyle's comments about economics not just being, um, you know, material money-related economy, but you know, the, the way people live in relationships and interdependencies. Uh, I think that, you know, women need to feel okay about the fact that when they create a home, they're doing something enormously valuable in terms of the work that they're doing. It has nothing at all. I mean, it's, it's laughable to assume that the only work that has value is work that has money associated with it. Mm -hmm. uh, and so there is really a symbiotic community in homes in which there, there's a lot of work that needs to take place, and all of that work is valuable so long as it contributes to human flourishing. So I, I think that thinking about work more holistically and not just in terms of compensation is important. Uh, having said that, though, I do think um, that they're, you know, to kind of echo what Kyle said, that, that dads and moms need to be thinking a lot more creatively about not just following the culture in thinking about how to prepare our children for adulthood. Uh, we need to be thinking about first principles and uh, what the nature of our existence uh, is will complement from uh, the skills that we encourage in our children, the lifestyle that we encourage them to develop, and uh, the way that we go about uh, setting their expectations for their own lives and their own occupations. Well, it was ambitious to think that we could cover a topic so broad 
and and so impactful and meaningful in our lives in just an hour, I think what I've discovered is we might need to revisit this conversation at a later date and look at a few different uh, facets of it because I think it's something certainly worth exploring more fully. Thanks a lot, you guys, for being here today. Thanks for joining us for the conversation. God created us to work and made it a blessing. Work in God's design invites us to imitate Him by forming order out of chaos and making life spring from emptiness. Puritan author and preacher Thomas Watson wrote, God sets all His children to work. Heaven indeed is a place of rest, but while we are here, we must labor in a calling. We work to meet not only our own needs, but also contribute to the needs of others. But in a culture that increasingly pushes Christian conviction to the sidelines, we need to think deeply about how to work within our jobs, families, and churches in a way that lasts. Our homes should be training grounds for fruitful Christian service, and our churches should equip their members with opportunities to work with our hands for the growth of our souls, the good of our neighbors, and the glory of God. This has been a Faith and Culture Conversation, a ministry of Lake Ridge Bible Church. We invite you to send your comments and questions to faithandculture at lakeridge.org. We'd love to hear from you. Special thanks to Jeremy Wilkerson for producing.